In John chapter 6, we uh, come across Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And if you uh, were raised in any kind of a Christian background, you have flannel graph and coloring sheets all in your head. And uh, if you're younger than flannel graph, which... You know, I mean, you could be 50 and be younger than your flannel graph. But if you're younger than flannel graph, and if you don't know what that is, just, you know, it's the way of eight tracks and, and all of that kind of stuff. You may, you may have in your head pictures uh, from movies. You know, the Gospel of John. Uh, there's a movie called the Gospel of John. There's one the Gospel of Matthew. There's one on Luke. There's the Jesus story. All these different things that we see trying to connect ourselves to the story of Christ. Because when we read about Jesus in the Scriptures, when we even just talk about Him with each other, we long to see more of Him. Okay, This is why we're here this morning. And before anything else, it's because we actually want to see more and, and be more of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's why we uh, are going through the Gospel of John. Because every book, every letter, every word, I believe, that is between these uh, pages is Scripture. I believe it was God-breathed and inspired for us so that we could learn, so that we could grow, so that we could be challenged. But I find nothing more challenging than simply looking at who Jesus was, how He lived, what He said, and what He did. If, uh, if we get that, truthfully, we've gotten everything. Uh, because all the rest of Scripture is merely pointing us to these things. And so that's, that's why I love coming back and going through a gospel uh, every now and then, just going straight through and seeing his life and seeing what he did. If we, if we think about the 5,000, we immediately think of fish and bread. Or if you've ever uh, been kind of like Steve brings stuff, and uh, I, really, I really wish those were real crickets in those baggies. That would be awesome. For one, I wouldn't have to buy lunch for my kids today. That would have been cool. The uh, <laughs> high-protein stuff, that is. Uh, and probably certified... Organic. You can probably get that. If, if you've ever been, uh, when I do those things for the kids, like I did it for Tuesday School a couple of years ago, you know, I like to bring a bowl of sardines. Let those kids, because, you know, it's a sad thing. Most children in America are deprived of the experience of sardines. And I don't understand why that is. I live in Russia. I've eaten them in cake for crying out loud, okay? <laughs> but uh, no, even Jesus didn't multiply that. That's all I'm saying about how that went. But these are our, our, kind of our, the things that, that come to mind. But there were bigger things going on. It's, it's kind of funny. When we talk about the miracles, we, we focus on the miracles. But in every miracle in Scripture... There was something bigger going on, something that he wanted us to grasp about who he was, about what he taught, about what he said and, and what we are in him. And so always we want to catch what was Jesus really trying to point to when he does these things. And so actually on this particular one, we're going to talk about this this week and then we're going to do the sermon that I told Curly we were doing this week. That'll be next week. Yeah, whatever I told you, we're not doing it. So, you know. Uh, I know what I told you. I just I looked at it again and I said, I can't skip there. I got more stuff to get in first. But there's so much here that is not just about bread and fish. And our life is about so much more than bread and fish. And, and aren't you glad? There's something here that actually cuts the core of who we are and who Jesus is. And that's what I want us to see today and as we go through this book as a whole. Let's go to John chapter 6. If you've got your Bible or your smartphone or, or your, uh, your tablet or your scroll, go over there. You never know. Somebody might. 
You just, you just never know. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, let's just stop there for a second because that's exactly what I was just saying. They were following because they had seen what he was able to do with the sick. But Jesus is wanting them in following him to see something more. Okay. Verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing what a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. You know, I always want, I gotta stop. I always wonder what in the world Andrew was thinking. Because we don't know. You know, was Andrew that full of faith that he was like, watch this, he's going to do something cool? Or was Andrew just sitting there mocking him and going, well, we got this, do do something with that? What? Or did he just come clueless? Well, here's a start. You want to see if anybody else got anything? Maybe he thought it was a little bit of a seed basket. You know, people talk about seed money and investing. Maybe they thought it was a little bit of a seed basket. I don't know. I don't know. But Andrew brought, and I tell you what, a little parenthetical lesson. We can learn a lot from Andrew, couldn't we? You probably heard people talk about that all of us need to be an Andrew. Because every time we see Andrew, he's doing something like this. Even if he didn't know what was about to happen, he would bring someone to Jesus because if nothing else, he knew Jesus had the answer. And I'll tell you, this is one of the things I've noticed over the last years, longer than being here. It's not a local thing. But one of the things that I've noticed, it seems like we have fewer and fewer Andrews. Of course, if fewer and fewer of us know Jesus, fewer and fewer of us are going to be Andrews to bring. But it doesn't need to be like that, does it? This is more than enough people to change the world by being an Andrew. Just this room right here. Again, I said it before, Jesus changed the world with 12 men. What can he do with a room full of people like this? And some of it just starts being an Andrew. I don't know what to do, but I can bring people to Jesus. Listen, again, you get that. You've gotten enough to sow the seeds of the kingdom. Philip, Philip said something else, didn't he? I ain't got enough money for that. It's almost like that video. Ain't nobody got time for that. I got bronchitis. I love that video. I just had to bring it up. The, uh, this is kind of Philip in that moment. We don't have any of that. Not anybody going to get enough food from out of that. Come on now. Let's send them home. We know this from other Gospels. They were ready to say, you know what, let's let them go home. They didn't bring anything. We ain't got no spam. We ain't got no money. Just, just send them home. Andrew brings a kid to Jesus. Here's a boy, five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, verse 10, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men, we know it wasn't Odessa. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again 
to the mountain by himself. One of the things that I want us to see, there's kind of an interesting thing going on here. John is actually addressing, in telling of this story, who Jesus is. It's the identity, the divinity. Who, who is Jesus? That's his question throughout the gospel. Who do you say that I am, Jesus would ask Peter. And the whole gospel of John is our who do you say that I am. And so when we come to the end of this, you have him saying that the people there that were present that day looked at him and said, well, I think he's a prophet. And this is interesting. When we get to John chapter 9, we're going to see something. There's a progression you see people go through where they start out by saying, you know, he was a man. He was the man who told me to go and wash the mud out of my eyes. And then he progresses and he says, well, I think he must be a prophet because nobody but a man from God, empowered by God, could have done what he did. But eventually the man... And John chapter 9 comes to a conclusion greater than that. And that chapter, 9, runs parallel in this concept to chapter 6. In chapter 6, they think they're following a man. They'd seen him do some things that they couldn't explain, but that they liked. He had healed some people. But as they had this encounter with him and they see this miraculous feeding of the 5,000. By the way, that's 5,000 men. Plus women, plus children. I mean, there could have been 15,000 people there for all we know. They didn't have just one kid or two and a half children or whatever it is these days, 1.75, I don't know. But, I mean, these people had kids, all right? And they're there. Thousands upon thousands of people he fed. And they start to say, hmm, maybe more than a man. This guy is, at the very least, a prophet. If you're reading the English Standard Version like mine, you've got a capital P prophet, right? He is from God. They know that. They're making this progression that runs parallel to John chapter 9 and the, and the realizations of the man who was healed of his blindness. There's something else going on here that I want us to think about. There are three, there are lots of names for God in the Old Testament, and each of them has a very special meaning. And in this story, and I don't know that this is John's intention at all that we would think about these things, but reading through them, these names of God are what I was reminded of and that I wanted to share with you this morning that are revealed the same character, and that is what John's trying to do. He's trying to get them to see Jesus having the same nature, character, divinity, and heart as Jehovah God. So I want to look at three Names of God that are three characteristics of God, three descriptions of his being that we see revealed here in John chapter six. So if you're a note taker, there you go. You got your you're going to have three things. And the first one is this one. When you look back in the, at the situation that they're in, he sees these people and there is a name for God that is given by uh, Hagar, not Hagar. Hagar is in. In Hosea, no, that's Gomer. Good night, land sakes of mercy. I did have coffee this morning, but it was weak a little bit, so I can't, I can't account for anything. When he deals with Hagar and Ishmael, out, that was right, out in the wilderness, when she's run off because Sarah's been mistreating her, uh, go back to Genesis chapter 15 and 12 to 15 and all of this stuff. All through 12 and 15, you have this whole drama going on. When he goes when, and sends a messenger to Hagar, and says, listen, I understand your situation. I know the right and the wrong thing here to do. I need you to go back. I need you to submit. I need you to do the right thing. I understand it's not fair. I know your son's not being treated fairly and you're not being treated fairly. But I will tell you, I will take care of you. 
Hagar says of the Lord a new name. The one who sees me. That's the name that you see up there. This, it's not Elroy. She didn't name God Elroy. But, you know, maybe if you have a kid named Elroy or want a kid named Elroy or a dog named Elroy, <coughs> you'll know what that means. God sees me. God sees me. Because that's what impacted her that day more than anything else. You see, nobody else had really seen her. They'd used her. Sarah used Hagar. She had a plot. She had a plan. She had a way that she wanted to work around God's promise to make it happen sooner, faster, better than she thought God was doing. Yeah, Curly cringed. How often do we make a mess of our life by trying to do things sooner, faster, or better than we thought God was doing them? God, I wanted that prayer answered faster, so I'm going to do this. God, I wanted that prayer answered differently, so I'm going to do this. And what kind of a mess does it make? We've talked here before. Well, how big a mess did Hagar's make? World War. Yeah, and for a long time. People oppressed over continents for centuries. Over Sarah's botched plan. But more importantly, when I look back, what impacts me is this. Hagar's name for the Lord. God sees me. We'll look back in chapter 6. Look at verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he didn't just see a large crowd that was coming. What Jesus saw was a large crowd that didn't have all that they needed. They were going to be hungry. They were going to be tired. They were going to be worn out. And if they're coming out to see him, he wants to show them hospitality and take care of their need. We have a God who sees us in the circumstance where we are, knows what we need, and immediately does something about it. And that's what Hagar saw, and that's what these 5,000 plus people saw. They saw that Jesus was one like God who could see, even as they got there, what their needs were. That's what they'd seen before. It's why they were walking out there in the first place. He, in John chapter 5, goes up to a man and says, Would you like to be well? Why? Because he had seen this man. He'd walked up, he'd seen his plight, he'd seen the hope that he had in this legend, knew it was false, and said, would you like something real to happen today? And this is the Jesus that we serve, and this is what John wants us to see. God sees you in whatever circumstance you're in, in whatever trial you face, whether it is hardship, temptation, disease, all of those things, if you're just sitting there looking at a stack of bills and you're thinking, I have no clue. Your God sees that. Jesus sees that. And if every time in Scripture we see Him see and then do, do we not believe that now God still sees, Christ still sees, and still does? That His compassion is not just a feeling, but a movement toward an answer. That's certainly why we have such a long prayer list. It's not just because that many people are sick. It's because that many people we know God sees. And so we go before him and we go before his throne and we say, God, we know you see this. Jesus, we know you know what's going on and we know you see further than we do. You see down the road. You see within their life and their heart 
and in their eternity. And you know what's best for them. Please, God. Because we believe He is the El. It's pronounced Ra'i. The God who sees us. John wants us to know that we don't live in a world of idols with stone eyes. I remember Max Locato years ago writing about it. It was one of his uh, very first big books. can't remember which one it was, though. It may have been Six Hours, One Friday, or He Still Moves Stones. It was one of those books. Uh, he writes about being in Rio de Janeiro. He used to be a missionary there. And the big statue, Christ the Redeemer, above Rio de Janeiro. Really, you know, I mean, as monuments go, pretty cool. And location, 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 right? That's all right. But one of the things that he said he was looking at it one day that really struck him was as he looked up at this statue was the lifelessness of the stone eyes. Eyes that cannot see. Hands that cannot move. And this is not the God we serve. The Jesus we know is a God whose hands serve. He washed His disciples' feet. He broke the bread. He gave out the fish. Because we serve a God who is living, a God who serves, and a God who sees. The other thing that's here, and I like this phrase. This this goes back to Abraham on the mountain in Genesis 19, or no, Genesis 22, when uh, he is about to sacrifice his child, Isaac. Have you ever wondered how in the world he even took the first step up that mountain? I do. I wonder. I wonder how many times he fought every fiber and cell of his being to keep taking one more step up. We know he walked by faith. We know he had reasoned in his mind, we're told later, that if, if God was going to keep his promise, he could raise him from the dead and he was going to work it out. What a faith. Well, when he gets up there, and after the, the angel's hand stops his hand, grabs him by the wrist there, and doesn't let him put that knife into Isaac, it has Isaac taken off of the altar. Over here to the side, rustling in the bushes, over here in the thicket, is a sacrifice to go in Isaac's place. Boy, if that isn't a little bit of type and shadow going on right there. But there is a substitution over here for Isaac that God has given. And Abraham praised God and said, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. I love that name for God. Because so many times in our life, we're at these kind of moments. Now listen, I don't know. We know that Jesus had compassion on them and he felt bad for them. I don't know how desperate these people were. It could have been pretty desperate. I mean, they're out kind of, you know, I mentioned Odessa earlier. It's only a little bit better where they were. But they sure weren't sitting in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't like they were just going to pluck up some lunch somewhere off a bush. So they were hungry and they were tired. And they were thirsty. And Jesus saw and Jesus cared. And Jesus gave. And He provided. How many times so far in your life to this point have you been at that moment of desperation and you went to the Lord and He provided? 
Sometimes in ways you can't understand. I, I can give you a few examples. I've been around that block several times. One time when we were first in New York, and when we first got there, we didn't have all of our support yet. I was driving a school bus and uh, tr- to make ends meet and get some insurance. You know, there were some times where we'd go to the grocery store, and I remember one night in particular where we were sitting there going, you know, I'd love to have me some Kikaman soy sauce. But I had to buy the Walmart great value. And I know it's probably the same, but it's not the same, you know. So, but I, you know, you get what you get. Some of you may be there right now. That may be your decision this afternoon. And I can remember those times. And I remember one day going to the mailbox in that time period. And we, I don't remember what the deal was. Something had broken I don't remember. Something broken. Could have been the minivan. Could have been the, 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 if it was after we were in the house, I can't even remember. I don't think so. Uh, but, you know, something, an appliance, something had broken. I remember one week the van broke, the toaster broke, the, the dryer broke. It just all of it broke. You know those days? I'm always thankful when it's the dryer because that doesn't mean water, right? I hate leaky water. But uh, I remember going out to the mailbox and there was an envelope with no return address except Bonham, Texas, where we served before we went to New York. And in this envelope was just one of those little cards, you know, thought you could use this. No name, no recognizable handwriting, but $300 in cash. Right when we needed about that. Still have no idea who did that for us, except that I know who did that for us. Working through one of his servants. This may sound sacrilegious, but I always say Jehovah done gyrated again. Jehovah Jireh, you know, kind of picture him doing a little bit of dance of happiness for us whenever he does provide. And he did it again. I remember the last day that we were in Russia. We had uh, we, we were I say last day, the last day in Russia is 36 hours long because of the train ride, 24 hour train ride from where we were. And it was just one of those days where you didn't do anything easily. It heart-wrenchingly was one of the hardest days of our life anyway. And very emotional and all of that stuff. You're saying goodbye and, and all that. And we get to the train station. And we're trying to get all of our stuff. We're saying goodbyes. And they changed the rules. And we were having to put our luggage in different places instead of putting it on the car. And they decided, well, you need to go back and have it weighed. And the train's leaving at this time. And they don't wait for anybody. Why would they? they got a schedule to keep. And they tell us, well, we need you to take your luggage back into the station, have it weighed, wait in that line, have it weighed, then come back. We'll look at that certificate, and if it's right, then we'll put you on the train. The only problem is going back into the station would be like going almost to Big G down here. It's that big a train station. And we're like, there's no way. The train leaves in like five, ten minutes. There's no way. And we're sweating it out. And we're going back and forth between these two train workers, trying to work it out. And they're not budging. Because, you know, if you think you're stubborn, you ain't seen nothing until you meet a, a Russian train worker, you know. It was not going to happen. And so finally, because this is what we do as humans, right? You're trying to work it out, trying to work it out, trying to work it out, trying to talk it out, trying to fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. Finally. It's supposed to be the first thing we do, but it's always finally, right? I'm walking back between where we're going to ride and the, the luggage car. And I said, Lord, you're going to have to do something here. Because 
we can't miss the train. We, we've got to go because then that would mess up our planes. It was all too tightly scheduled for any of this stuff to be happening. And I'm praying about it, and I get down to the thing, and they, right as I approach, they say, you know what? Just pay as if you wait it and get on. And it was done. Now, maybe that's coincidence. Maybe it's God incidence. God incidence? That's what we'll call it. You can decide. It's like Bill O'Reilly. I report, you decide. But that wasn't even the end of it. We do our 24-hour train ride, which I'm pretty sure God had to do some provision on the train too because, you know, that's a long train ride. We get to Moscow, and we're supposed to have this room all set up, and it's not done. And we have to do more praying and more fidgeting and more trying to fix first and then finally letting go, and then it all worked out. Well, then we were supposed to have a car take us to the airport because you can't just go out and hire a taxi there uh, to do this to the airport. I don't know why, but that's the way it was then. And so we, we were supposed to have a car. The car was not going to be there. So now we're having to call every rental car company in Moscow to see if they have one with a driver they can send over, and all the cars are booked. Every taxi is booked. Nobody is free to come and help us. And so we stand out there on the side of the street trying to just hire anybody with wheels to take us. And it wasn't just us. It was the other missionary family. And I don't know, 45 trunks it seemed like they had. They didn't. And if if James is listening, it was probably 46. But, you know, just all this stuff. And we've got to find some way to get it there. Or we, again, will miss our plane. And there will be. Finally, I stand out there on the curb and I say, you know what? He seems to be listening. Why don't we try this again? (laughs) And so I prayed again. I said, God, we have got to have something work out here. Stuck my finger out one more time. James stuck his finger out one more time. And a guy with a van pulls over and charges us less than a taxi and was able to fit every bit of our stuff in just in time. Then we get to the airport. Who loves an airport? I'm glad none of you raised your hand because that has to change this to a sermon about lying. So we get to the airport and Russian security is exactly what that sounds like. I liked Russia. I didn't like going through the airport security in Russia. The uh, we get there and, of course, international flights, you have limits to what you can take. We're over the limits. They're way over the limits, all of this stuff. A person in the next line over is also over the limit, and they're talking about charging them something like $900 for their bags. Another guy over is uh, having some of his stuff confiscated because they decided it was a national treasure. It was just an old violin, but it was a national, not a Stradivarius or anything, just an old violin. They decided they needed to keep that in Russia, and he said he was losing his stuff. And then I got stopped because the guy believed that my camera might be a spy camera and maybe a gun, and so I needed to take a picture. He's like, not of me, because I pointed it in him, and he's like, oh, no. So I have a random picture of some British dude in the Moscow airport somewhere. We finally get up there. What about your luggage? They start looking at it, and she says, that's never going to work. So they start tallying up what's this going to cost and all of this stuff, and we're wondering if we have enough cash. We think we do, but, you know, we're wondering how all that's going to work. And then they look over at the other family, and they're like, oh, no, (laughs) that's never going to all go. And we're thinking, oh, they're going to start making a shed stuff. I've had that happen. They're going to start making a shed stuff. I didn't take nearly this long to pray this time. I'm learning my lesson as the day goes on. Lord, I got one more favor. <laughs> I know I've asked a lot today, 
But, I kid you not, finished my prayer, and within a couple of minutes, she looks at all of our stuff and says, we're just going to let you put it on. This other guy had to pay hundreds. The other guy had to shed stuff. We're just going to let you put it on. Why don't you, we're not even going to weigh it. Just go ahead and put it on. And they tag all our stuff, and we get on the plane. We could argue coincidence. We could argue God incidences. Here's what I know. 5,000 men, their wives and their kids showed up in the desert to listen to Jesus. And God moved and Jesus acted and the Lord provides. And this is what I know. God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and even the Word that He spoke to us is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The Lord sees you. And the Lord provides for you. Never forget that. He will hear. He will answer. He will deliver. May not always be on the schedule we like. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You know what I love about John? He leaves out a whole lot of stuff here. What in the world? If you're familiar with the story, you're going, I thought Peter got out of the boat. I thought the storm was really bad. I thought it was like lightning and they went, ah, a ghost. There was all this stuff that happens in this story. Well, it's all there. But John's trying to get to something real quick. You know, he's got a point he's wanting to make. And this last one is this. Jesus is the Almighty One, the God of heaven and earth. He's trying to get them to see Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is not even, as they thought after the feeding of the 5,000, just a prophet. He wants them to see that He is El Shaddai, the Almighty One. The One who can control the seas because He made the seas. The One who can say to them, stop. And they stop, as he did when he calmed the sea from within the boat. The one who can reach down, as the other accounts tell us, and say to Peter, let's go back to the boat. The one who would inspire such faith in Peter that Peter would actually say, if that's really you, let me come out to you. See, when you get the first two things, you have faith in El Shaddai. You have faith that God is the Lord of heaven and earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And no waves, even if you temporarily sink, no waves will ever overtake you. No waves will ever permanently sink you because God is God. And what John is trying to get this crowd to see, what he's trying to get his disciples to see, is what they eventually do see. The other accounts, we had their confession. Surely He is the Son of God. From man to prophet to the Lord of heaven and earth. The God who sees. The God who provides. The God who is over all heaven and earth. 
And it's that God in which we believe. And that God which we serve. And that Jesus that we will gather around this table and celebrate His life, His death, and His resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the blessing of being Your children. For the blessing of knowing that Your grace covers all of our doubts, covers all of our mistakes, covers all of our losses. That You still love us. You still see us. You still hear us. You still provide for us. Father, we pray as we eat this bread and as we drink from this cup, we remember the covenant that we have with You. Father, we pray that Your love will spread throughout this community and others will come to know that You alone, that You are God. Father, we thank You for Your mercy and for Your grace. And it's in Your Son's name that we pray. Amen. We always offer an invitation. And we don't do it out of tradition alone. We don't do it out of habit. We do it because we believe what we've just seen in the Gospel of John. We hope you believe. The last thing that John says is that I have written these things that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants you to understand. He wants you to believe. If you believe and you're ready to confess that belief, if you are ready to express that belief, by being buried with Christ, having your sins washed away, His Spirit to come live within you. That's the promise Scripture gives us when we surrender to Christ in baptism and are raised with Him. If that's your faith, we invite you to that today.